Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to the cutaway. You're here with me, Max, aka DJ Dirty Squirtle Myrtle. This is Max in third person. Yeah, this is Max in third person. <laughs> and I'm Franz Kafka on PCP. And we want to welcome you back to my funeral, aka the Schlunderdome, aka the cutaway we're waiting here. Waiting on the florist to get here. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're waiting on our resident florist to bring in our uh, our fauna. <laughs> Today's pod, we will provide to you, the cherished listener, our first foreign policy and global news roundup. Round them up. Featuring the terrorist attack in downtown Manhattan. Featuring the terrorist. It's like the, the main event. Yeah. We're gonna dinner dancing in a terrorist attack. Yeah. Can this please make it into the final cut? Sure. Uh, the Lebanese Prime Minister's resignation and subsequent reemergence in Lebanon. The Saudi corruption probe. <laughs> Uh, and much more that you may have missed. We're all we're also almost overjoyed to have our good friend Emily Haney, aka Princess Pesa. Principesa Mayonesa. <laughs> that still wins for me. To discuss the state of mental health legislation and what the future of mental health reform looks like. We loved having Emily on last week. And we most definitely look forward to having her on as a regular contributor. Yeah, Emily, say hello to all your adoring fans out there. Yeah, we're very excited to talk about mental health in America Sweet. and its stigma. And I'm excited to make us all a little bit smarter, hopefully. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, later on today's pod, I will be going over the recent elections, particularly the ones that happened uh, in Virginia and New Jersey and what this could possibly mean for the Democrats in 2018, 2020, and beyond. Um, and essentially, you should all be ready for me to turn into Pundit Max and just wildly predict what's going to happen within the DNC. Um, all that and more on today's episode of The Cutaway. So stick around, and we will uh, dive into our foreign policy roundup. Head first. All right, everybody, welcome to our newest segment. We're gonna try this, this episode, our our foreign policy and global news roundup led by DJ Franz Kafka on PCP, AKA Frank Zappa. Take us away, Frank Zappa. I'm DJ Papa John. So Austin, uh, lead us through our first segment of foreign policy and global news roundup. So let's begin by analyzing the ISIS attack in Manhattan that killed eight after a big white van plowed through a bike lane for over a mile. Who does that? The, uh, the attacker escaped from the van yielding a paintball gun and a pellet gun, which is what Max does every morning when he leaves the house. When I leave for school on my moped. Until he was shot. Also me every day. Yeah. And he also, he screamed ISIS songs in his hospital room, which is what Max does in the shower. <laughs> Dude, Spoil, the, spoiler alert. Yeah, seriously, the CIA is going to come kicking in our fucking door in the morning. Yeah, more like the NCAA. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what I wanted to get at with this particular um, news topic is mentioning this attack, not to bring it up because it's an old news story at this point, but to rather emphasize that yet again, 
the general public misunderstanding of those associated with ISIS is in a completely different direction than what it needs to be. So here, the American public maintains a double standard like it always has uh, when an ISIS claimed attack occurs. So we react by identifying the act as terrorism, identifying the individual as a terrorist, um, and not nearly in the same way that we would identify, say, Stephen Paddock, uh, Anders Breivik, Timothy McVeigh, the list goes on. It's ignored that ISIS is claiming to be a mass murderer like the aforementioned men, but ISIS has a unique way of justifying itself because of the organization's extremist, jihadist context. So what and I mean also, by this... It's, it's important to note, too, that like an ISIS-claimed attack is different than... Yeah, it can um, be anything. Right, ex exactly. And uh, not only that, but they'll claim an attack just for its uh, political capital yeah. as well. Uh, so what I mean by, you know, that any individual uh, can be activated in an ISIS mold uh, it, it is to awaken what they believe is a tradition when in fact it's just a 400-500 year old practice uh, which other movements don't have because these people feel like they're part of this uh, very strong community that's founded upon hatred. Um, so in the wake of the attack there's, a, there's an actual context this time um, with what's happening in Syria and Iraq. Uh, it can't be forgotten that 40,000 people from Europe, from the rest of the Middle East, from North America, from South America, everywhere, travel to Syria to fight for ISIS. And uh, now they're returning to wherever they started. And uh, because of Russian intervention, Iranian intervention, American intervention, pushing them out of Syria, uh, as well as Iraqi Iranian forces doing the same in Iraq, these people have nowhere to go upon returning home. And they carry with them the same uh, psychological trauma and uh, environment along with them upon uh, returning home. Right, so, and it's, I mean, like you said, it's really important to note that um, this particular attack in the United States actually um, resulted in a military response from the United States. This right, time. Yeah. And it's, uh, there's always a lot of like, uh, like, you know, gusto on tv where you'll see politicians and pundits being like we got to go get isis but like this time we actually did it like we're actually uh escalating some sort of uh military presence yeah in response to it well i think it's gotten to that point where when we react uh you can attack the problem from underneath it or organically it's not a societal issue anymore right. it's you know these people are returning to wherever they had fought in syria and iraq with like military mindsets and milita military tactics, basically. And when that's the case, you fight an army with another army. Right. Uh, you can't... It's more like conventional warfare as yeah, opposed yeah. to like the guerrilla stuff that we've been used to. Yeah, Honestly, exactly. for most of the yeah. people that are our age, like that's what we're used to seeing. But we're, at the same time, we're talking about this, and <clears throat> we don't see someone who killed so many people in Las Vegas as a terrorist, so... That's what I'm trying to get at with uh, mentioning this. So in a time when uh, the aftershock of Las Vegas, uh, it numbs us to such an extent that it exceeds our expectations of what a terrorist attack could be like. Um, so how do we work against these attacks? Uh, what angle can we even take now since we don't really have a true definition of what terrorism is? Um, and as we've seen recently um, in the Middle East, you have to fight what we believe is terrorism with uh, these all-out military raids. Um, so when there's a lot, when there's confusion, it brings uh, 
an open door for Trump to enact certain policies that he's been waiting to enact right. since That's, day one. That literally have absolutely nothing to do with combating terrorism. It's all about a catering to his like populist um, immigration policy that he was campaigning on. Um, and Austin, we can talk about this with like the wanting to end the chain migration and uh, the the immigration lottery, right? Which has which was developed to um, in, not invite, but to allow Irish people to come to this country to escape the famine in the nineties. Right. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a buzzword at this point, chain migration. But it, uh, you know, doing anything that he's doing won't really do anything to uh, eliminate that process. Anyway, his his reaction is to. Um, Discontinue immigration with the RAISE Act, which would cut legal immigration uh, in half. Um, the temporary protection um, legislation has been revoked. And this uh, specifically uh, relates to Nicaraguans and Guatemalans during uh, the 90s when they were displaced due to natural disaster and afterwards. Uh, an era of war, basically. Right, the, and it's worth noting, especially when talking about, um, like, the, like the, the, the 90s during, this was during H.W. Uh, Bush's um, presidency, the United States was using illegal um, military force bombing South American countries, and that created a large humanitarian crisis where we essentially were forced to take people in um, because we were the ones that were blowing up their homes. Right. It's, it's worth noting that. But the original legislation um, was designed to send them back and repeatedly each time their, their stay in the U.S. is extended. So he's just choosing a convenient time to actually act upon uh, a failure in the law. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. But uh, yeah, a lot of these people um, will be, you know, inconvenienced because of, you know, the back door for amnesty is sort of eliminated. Uh, and here we are 15 years later with, with like he, Max was saying, a lot of these people have been here for that long and uh, there's the chance that they will return to wherever they came from. So uh, moving on to Kurdistan or what many Kurds believe is Kurdistan at least, the Kurdish president Masoud Barzani is stepping down because not long ago the Kurds uh, had voted for independence, but Iraqi forces have taken back large territories of oil-rich land. So the referendum was uh, posited because they thought they would have the U.S. support that they've always had, when in fact... Um, not going to happen. And also, right. it's, it's, this is an interesting piece of information about this. Paul Manafort actually was one of the people working with the Kurdish leaders to lead um, this referendum uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, forge their own independence. So... Just a, a nice little fun update on what Paul Manafort's been been up to working as a right. lobbyist. Well, I I understand why I don't understand why he would do that, but it makes sense because Kurd, establishing Kurdistan uh, eliminates any sort of relationship the U.S. could have by proxy with not only Turkey, obviously, but with uh, Iraqi forces in Iraq that have um, been given basically Iranian armies through the PMU uh, to fight ISIS. And so Iraqis, Iranians, they're both uh, largely Shia populations as well as uh, 
the Assad regime is, was a largely Shia population. So across the board, you establish a like Shia, a, a chain of like Shia neighbors underneath Kurdistan, um, and it, it doesn't have really the political leverage to um, stay independent. So the oil fields, which is pretty much the only reason that uh, Kurdistan is a, an issue right now, uh, will remain Iraqi and will remain by proxy Turkish because a lot of the oil that's coming from these Kurdish oil fields goes directly to Turkey to be uh, sent throughout the, uh, Eastern Europe. Right, so much ado about uh, nothing for right now. <laughs> right, but this is important because it's the first time that the U.S. has not stuck behind uh, its promise. Right. Typically, the U.S. would give uh, any Kurdish troop or any sort of uh, military efforts in Kurdistan you know, weapons, money, food, aid, everything. This time it's not the case. So let's get down to the Saudi corruption yeah, anal about, probe. Let's let's talk about some uh, some Saudi corruption probes. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of activity going on um, in Saudi Arabia, undoubtedly due to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman Salman trying to <laughs> trying to uh, consolidate power. Um, as he uh, inevitably ascends to the throne. Yeah, a 32-year-old. It's like the Austrian uh, <laughs> prime right, minister. Yeah. It could be the same person. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's anything is possible in this in this year of our Lord, 2017. <laughs> uh, so, right, as Max was saying, in Saudi Arabia, there are 201 people arrested and staying um, imprisoned in a Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, there, there. Uh, I this is interesting. I saw some pictures on Twitter of the accommodations in which these uh, prisoners are being held, and it's exactly as ludicrous as you could imagine. It's like the lobby of one of the most decadent hotels in the world has been converted into a jail, and it's like one big open room, like open air cell or whatever, with like king size mattresses from the rooms, yeah. like strewn all over the floors, and they throw out all the uh, people who are staying in the hotel. Right, and if you if you go online and try to book a room at the Ritz Carlton in Saudi Arabia right now. Um, they have some weird message about how it's like currently booked. <laughs> like they don't even like come out and say like, "Oh yeah, right now it's being used as a jail, um, so that a new dictator can be put in power in Saudi Arabia." It's just saying that it's booked up. <laughs> we got a lot of we got a lot of guests right now. Yeah, they'll be there forever. Um, but reports claim that the arrested include some of uh, the most important economic actors in Saudi Arabia. So this is not necessarily a political pivot. This is to um, kind of allow foreign investment to occur in Saudi Arabia and take a lot of uh, privately owned, uh, specific, specifically oil giants within Saudi Arabia and uh, allow them to have public, um, be accessible to public trading for the first time, namely Aramco, which I thought would never happen, but with Ben Salman, anything's possible. Anything is possible! Uh, so like I was saying, these arrests of these outsiders, uh, those who are economic players, they can't really affect policy, um, but they can affect numbers and they can affect investment. Um, it's the belief of the Saudi inner circle that this purge 
heightens rule of law, and allows for successful economic investments without requiring royal partners. Um, and by this, they could boost the Saudi economy um, and would have, in large part, a general rise in transparency and efficiency because you no longer have this lineage of royalty involved in uh, fiscal decision making. Which is which is a, a huge thing for Saudi Arabia. Yeah. That's a very, very uh, new development for them economically and as, uh, like you said, in terms of foreign investment. Right, so it opens up, like I was saying, um, many ways for the Saudi economy to eventually wean off of oil, uh, which has always been its claim to fame internationally. Uh, but it, this is mainly possible because uh, Prince Mohammed has public support from many Saudis, um, in large part because they feel that change is necessary and he is representing this leading change uh, not only fiscally but socially. Um, he's claimed to do so by speaking of an Islam that's moderate or he's lifted the ban on women being able to drive a car. Um, he's offering uh, construction projects that are related to like cinemas and malls and like uh, right. so entertainment it's like, uh, like cultural um, liberation um, as a way to like manipulate the <laughs> the people of Saudi Arabia right. into giving him more power to act as an authoritarian leader. Right. It's 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 a very 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 shrewd tactic um, by this guy, undoubtedly because. He's a young guy who's very much, I think, in tune with what the global uh, political landscape is and like what works and what doesn't. Uh, I to think internally this is, a, this is a smart move. Externally, uh, Saudi foreign policy is a disaster. But I mean, yeah, but as far yeah, but as far as like uh, uh, the you know whatever you want to call it, the transition of power to um, the crown prince, like he's doing all the right things to gain support within Saudi Arabia. Right, yeah, and I think that's the only thing that matters at this point. How do you bring about social change in such a conservative area of the world? You kind of just take uh, people's positions from them. <laughs> uh, I'll have to bear that in mind when I uh, take over. Yeah, uh, take over Saudi Arabia. When I take over as the emperor of South Carolina. <laughs> Saudi Carolina. Yeah, exactly. The kingdom, um, of, the kingdom of Saud in Carolina. Yeah, kingdom of Saud. Uh, so, as I was saying... Sod, what, S-O-D, grass. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nuclear sod. Your, <laughs> your palace of the masters. Um, so, what internally, this kind of doesn't sound all that bad because it's going to bring about social change and potentially economic change within Saudi Arabia. Externally, uh, Saudi Arabia is still the worst nightmare of any foreign policy strategist. Um, there's little room for compromise in any way with the conflicts of, uh, in Yemen, where uh, cholera... One of the worst humanitarian crises. <laughs> yeah. And it's like... It's the worst. I, well, I, mean, I think there... This is happening all over the world right now, but yeah, I mean, this is terrible. Like, uh, if you do any cursory research on what's going on in Yemen right now, it's horrifying. It is absolutely yeah. horrifying, the famine that is uh, going on in Yemen right now. But this is why it's uh, even more horrifying. <laughs> Uh, so, as many people know, there's a cholera outbreak which has killed 2,000 people. Um, and 7 million people have been left on the brink of famine. Now, uh, something really difficult to acknowledge uh, in relation to famine is that uh, the Saudis have cut off their aid 
because the uh, Houthi rebels, which are the opposition force in Yemen, um, and the basically the Iranian-backed uh, faction within Yemen, uh, aimed a missile at Riyadh. It was uh, intercepted. Nonetheless, the Saudis uh, withdraw from any aid effort going into Yemen, which is uh, awful. On top of that, uh, their pivot towards uh, creating this embargo with Qatar, that's uh, since the summer been viewed as a political failure. And uh, there's really no point of return in that regard. Um, but that's where we're left off. Externally, Saudi Arabia is still the nightmare that we thought it was. Internally, there's actually some economic change, change some social change. And it's kind of happening all at once and really quickly. And I think um, it's like very difficult to uh, predict what's going to happen, uh, mostly because you know it's going on in a very volatile part of the world right now, and especially given the countries around it. But um, I think that uh, as long as everything uh, there's, there's no major like uprising, it's likely that the crown prince will just consolidate power and. Um, will likely keep moving Saudi Arabia in the direction that he's been moving it. But yeah, I mean, we talk about some the Saudi police on. within uh, Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah, they still I mean, they still represent like a large. Uh, it's sort of like the forces that are in Iran. It's like right. the same thing where they're culture agents that walk the streets and walk throughout malls and tell you what to mm -hmm. do, basically tell yeah. you to go home, whatever. But yeah, they still have secret police. Everywhere. Um, but yeah, uh, let's move on to Lebanon, where the Prime Minister Saad Hariri has resigned, but has since returned to Lebanon, um, saying that now it's safe to return because he will no longer be assassinated, or so he believes. Um, That's how comforting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Saad Hariri's father, uh, Rafiq Hariri, was the leader of Lebanon until the Cedar Revolution, when he was assassinated. Um, the Cedar Revolution followed, and it was noticed this uh, pacifist, uh, anti-violent reaction to their leader being assassinated. And for that, uh, Syrians withdrew. Uh, during that, before the uh, Cedar Revolution, Syrian influence was all throughout Lebanese government, Le uh, Lebanese policymaking. And because of that uprising, because of that revolution, uh, Lebanon became its own independent nation with its own self-sustaining government and political structure. That's neither here nor there. What I'm getting at is that Hariri is fearing the same thing to happen to him because the, that happened to his father. Um, and, you know, when the Syrians were there, they were the Shia majority with not only within Syria, but within Lebanon. And what is the closest thing to a Shia majority within the Middle East? that we have today, it's Iran. And uh, obviously within Lebanese parliament, Hezbollah is a prominent party, which is backed by Iran. You're right, I was going to say, uh, a lot of uh, the fact that their their prime minister stepped down does not necessarily mean political turmoil for Lebanon because Hezbollah is the government. Right, well, like, yeah. It's, 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 large, it's a large part of the government. And uh, not too dissimilarly from like uh, how the Revolutionary Guard operates in right. Iran, um, except I think that Hezbollah certainly, well, I don't think, I know certainly that 
um, Hezbollah has more of the public base, um, you know, like being associated with a terrorist group more so than I think people realize that the Revolutionary Guard is. Right, yeah. It sort of doesn't have the same right. uh, central or federal identity that Revolutionary Guard does. But uh, yeah, this is another development in the Saudi-Iranian proxy war, and um, any subsequent maneuvering would uh, obviously be extended into Yemen, into Afghanistan, into Syria, into Iraq, where all of these proxy wars involve. Right on. Well, everyone, stick around. Our next segment, we are going to have our friend Emily Haney discussing the mental health, the state of mental health in the United States. So stick around for your health. For your health. Stick around and we will be discussing that next. I have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got the, we've got these volume levels peeking out already. <laughs> I'm peeking. Literally eight seconds into recording this segment, we're all screaming at each other already. No, you guys are screaming. I'm just sitting here wondering when it's all going to Fuck it, let's do it live! <laughs> yeah. so, spoiler alert, we have Bill O'Reilly in the studio with us today. <laughs> Okay, everyone, welcome back. Welcome to Inside Edition. Yeah, welcome to Inside Edition with Bill O'Reilly. And here with us today is Bill O'Reilly. Bill, take it away. Yes, my name is Bill, Emily, M. Billy yeah. O'Reilly. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking about mental health today. Um, it is a topic that is near and dear to my heart um, for a multitude of reasons. Um, but first, I do have a little disclaimer um, so my goal here is to address the common ground all of us who face mental health challenges stand on. Um, I myself admit I'm in a position of privilege being that I have access to health care that I need through my job. Um, so I can only speak to my own experience with mental illness and what I have observed. Um, but yeah, today this discussion was kind of spurred by um, our dear leader, President Trump, saying that the Texas church shooting was... <laughs> Can you not? <laughs> please, please continue, Emily. Please continue. Um, so President Trump said that the um, Texas church shooting was not a gun control issue, that it was a mental health Fucking issue. Fucking unreal. Abs by the way, that's absolutely unreal. I don't yeah. care what your what your politics are. That's, that's unreal. Yeah, but this comes, um, what, like eight months or so after he... Um, repeals one of Obama's regulations that would um, prohibit people who are unable to work and unable to handle their own finances from buying a gun. So um, this move was supported by the NRA, ACLU, and several uh, disability rights groups um, because buying, being able to buy a gun with little to no uh, roadblocks is an American right. It's my constitutional right to be able to buy them guns. <laughs> I got a gun in my pocket. <laughs> DJ, I got a gun in my pocket. I'm not afraid to use it. I'm Roy Moore. Oh I'm Boy Moore, and there's a gun in my ass. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. I don't even know where to go from there. So. Our theory. Oh my God, Emily, tell it. What's your theory? I'm loaded. <laughs> oh, so I have a theory. Give us your theory. I think Trump is a witch. Do I have any substantial evidence to support that claim? No, but neither does Trump. But that's what punditry is all has. about. True. Yeah. So we're starting it here. <laughs> Trump is a witch. Gather your pitchforks. Gather your torches. Um, 
So yeah. It's the Salem witch trials all over again. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I swear to God, having a religious experience right now. Okay. Um, I'm mad about it. Yeah, so oh, I'm mad your, about it. Line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Line. <laughs> Don't give me the line when I ask for it. Line. <laughs> so Trump literally said that this isn't a time to be talking about gun control. And I'm mad. So if it's a mental health issue, where is this where's the crusade for mental health services to be made more widely available in order to prevent mass shootings? by a mentally ill person in the future. Um, so there was an article I read on the Daily Beast that summarized um, this incident uh, pretty accurately in my eyes. Um, they said, Trump has his talking points down. When one of these mass shootings occur, he parrots the NRA that it's not guns, it's mental health. But don't be fooled, says Applebaum, who wrote, no, he didn't write it. He was interviewed. Maybe he thinks he's, maybe he's talking about his own mental health. Maybe. Well, I mean, it's not guns. It's my myth, my own mental health. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm really not worried about guns so much as I'm senile and have dementia, <laughs> and I'm worried that the American populace is going to find out about it. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this is a a major thing. Just like I mean, we're literally like three paragraphs into our outline on this segment and I'm already like on fire about it but <laughs> literally I, I set myself Michael on Jackson fire yeah <laughs> yeah oh, no. so it, like if you if this is a mental health issue why would you cut Medicaid which provides mental health services to like 20% of the American uh, population it's fuck it's unreal so yeah I, uh, I just want to talk about how um, so, the, like, the only time that mental health is brought into the national spotlight is to speculate motives for, um, modems? Motives. <laughs> I'm buffering a baby. <laughs> I'm downloading. To speculate motives for violent offenders and mass murderers. So, uh, how much support would you guys feel in the current rhetorical climate that surrounds mental health? Zero. Yeah, yeah. As, as close to zero as is logically possible for there to be. So, if you were, like... If you were, like, down in the dumps, scared to seek help, um, like, on the ledge, if you saw Trump speaking the, the way he is about mental health, you would not feel safe seeking help? No, well, I mean, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to dig into this. There's obviously, like, a cultural stigma around it, but also, from a policy standpoint, you are almost discouraged from seeking actual medical attention for it because mm -hmm. from an insurance standpoint, you're like <laughs> worried about having a pre-existing condition when, um, you know, your mental health is uh, as important as the rest of your physical health. Yeah. Well, you know, 43.8 million adults experience mental illness in a given year. Um, and that amounts to to about one in five adults. That's staggering. Um, one in one in twenty five uh, or ten million adults in America live with a serious mental illness. Half of all chronic mental illness begins by the age of fourteen, um, and three quarters by the age of twenty four. Um, so twenty six percent of homeless adults staying in shelters uh, live with serious mental illness. And 24% of state prisoners have a recent history with a mental health condition. Now that does not shock me. No, no, no. So this is, this is just evidence of um, a vulnerable community who um, is not given the resources it needs to thrive in America. Um, another statistic that is 
quite um, upsetting is that nearly 60% of adults with a mental illness didn't receive mental health services in the previous year. Nearly 50% of youth aged 8 to 15 didn't receive mental health services in the last year, and the average delay between onset of symptoms and intervention is 8 to 10 years. That's like, that's fucking incredible. Yeah. That, that factor right there that it takes almost a decade in order for you to actually begin to seek treatment for mm -hmm. some sort of mental illness. That's, that's staggering. Because think about what could happen in 10 years. I mean, oh, the, wow. the, it's literally, you could go down a rabbit hole of like uh, wondering what the hell goes on in a person's life in 10 years because of untreated, uh, you know, mental illness. Yeah, it can completely consume you, your life, um, your family's lives. Um, if left untreated. So it's just something that people need to pay attention to. Um, so I think the part of what keeps people from looking for help is the stigma that's attached to mental health. And that's ultimately what I want to talk about today um, and try to um, kind of cut into it a little bit and make it a little less scary to talk about. Um, so the CDC reports that 57% um, of adults believe that people are caring and sympathetic to persons with mental illness, but actually only 25% of adults with mental illness symptoms believed that people are caring and sympathetic to persons with mental illness. Um, and that's an attitude that is kind of, uh, it carries over into everyday conversation. Like you hear um, people talking about uh, people that they know that may be unmotivated, who may be unable to get out of bed, who can't leave their house because they're agoraphobic or they have extreme anxiety, what have you, um, or if they have severe hallucinations. Uh, it's just something that people don't really understand, and if they don't understand it, it scares them. And right. so we paint the mentally ill in a scary light. <clears throat> and right, and I think, I think a lot of that has to do, too, with um, we're, as like a culture, at least, you know, from, at least I can speak from the standpoint of in America, we're taught to think that people with mental illness are, like, escaping from, like, mental wards, and it's, like, it's going to be a slasher movie. Like Quasimodo. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Quasimodo. Yeah. But, no, I mean, really, like, uh, people... Like Igor from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> right, yeah. And we, like, we expect them to all be, like, uh, these, like, dangerous to society types of people, and in reality, it's, like, the person that you share an office with, likely is experiencing some sort of mental illness. Um, Do you think the uh, FDA having no control over drug regulations <clears throat> and doctors over-prescribing medications across the board for all mental health, uh, do you think that poses as a false outlier in the sense that uh, when people try to seek help, all they think of is getting that prescription and leaving the doctor's office without any sort of constructive pro like progress? Well, that, I mean, that is a, that's just one of the many routes that people can go down, though, with um, seeking help for their mental health problems. They can just go to a psychiatrist and be like, here are my, here are my problems, right. um, just give me medicine for it. Um, I've done that where all I've had, I've only had sessions with psychiatrists simply to manage my medicine and no other kind of, like, like therapeutic outlet. Right, but for a person who's going for the first time, mm -hmm. that's their perception, like, the road, yeah. the, the road ahead yeah. is so immense that all they think about is taking out something that's prescribed. That's what I thought before I sought therapy on my own, you know, when I was in college and I was like 
something's got to be done, but I didn't know what to do. Yeah. It, but it could also pose a generational gap in the sense that big pharma has risen to the occasion yeah. uh, more so in the past, you know, 20 years. Yeah, and if, if you are, and if you are suffering from mental health symptoms or, or mental illness symptoms, uh, what have you, um, you know, there are ways to <clears throat> seek therapy without being medicated. So if you, there's like this idea that if you seek help, then they're just going to pump you full of drugs and kind of let you drool all, all over yourself until your right. brain kind of writes itself. Um, but I think but seeking like psychological or psychiatric uh, help of any kind is overshadowed by this polarizing effect of us knowing that we have no control over drug companies. Yeah. We also have no control over the chemicals. Oh, right, right. The, yeah. Right. I mean, that's a that's more of a, a policy thing yeah. than it is a cultural thing. Is that that like? Yeah, this, but it can manifest in people's decision making. I mean, yeah, certainly. But I think a lot of that stems from policy. It has to do with you know, it's very easy to get benzos just mm -hmm. by going in to see. I mean, I, I've I've done the same thing. Oh, it's way to, too easy. It's go and get benzos so easily, just one session with a psychiatrist. So, and I think that's like that's a policy thing. That's in uh, you know dealing with healthcare and insurance and everything. Um, and that's where seeing like a therapist, like, uh, whether it's talk therapy or, um, you know, coping skills therapy, whatever you need, it's, uh, important to kind of go that route first to see if medication is necessary. Um, because a lot of it, a lot of times just, uh, lifestyle changes and, um, you know, like mental exercises can be enough for some people, yeah. but for others it's not. And, um, that shame of needing something other than therapy, potentially um, one or more prescriptions, um, I don't think that shame should be attached to it because it's already hard enough to, you know, go through it in the first place, like be a prisoner to your own mind. So I just wish that it was a little bit easier um, for people to seek help or there was less, less shame attached to it. Let's talk about ableism. So ableism is basically like assumptions that have been thrust upon us about disabled people. Um, it can be most simply uh, defined as discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities. Um, ableism characterizes persons as defined by their disabilities and as inferior to the non-disabled. Um, so it's almost like uh, and like to some degree, like you see someone who is, you know, dealing with mental illness and dysfunctioning and it's like all good for them mm -hmm. as opposed to seeing them as like they're just a, a regular person. We're all complicated and their complication just has to be a mental illness as opposed to, you know, being an asshole or yeah. <laughs> having a, a, you know, bum knee or whatever. It's like, pretty much. yeah, I mean, um, and it's interesting to so like mention that and my any of my experience with like uh, mental health deals in in like addiction you know as an mm -hmm. addict myself and uh, it's it's so interesting you sit down and talk to people about um, you know their views on uh, like you know addicts or alcoholics or whatever their whatever their deal is and um, it's like well I don't understand why people can't just moderate. You know, it's mm -hmm. like what you were talking about in the beginning where it's something that people don't understand so they get like angry about it, like mm -hmm. fearful and angry about it. Yeah. Um, and that's like, a, I think that translates across the whole spectrum of, of like, a, you know, mental health, like uh, mental illnesses is that 
it's something where uh, unless you're going through it yourself, you can't really like fat, even the people who are like close allies of, uh, you know, the, you know, mental health, like awareness, mm -hmm. uh, sort of movement, unless you're going through it yourself, it's very difficult to be able to totally identify with it. And so, uh, you know, these people who like, for instance, dealing with someone who's depressed, might just say like, oh, why don't you get up and get some exercise, go for a walk yeah. in the woods. It's like, if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, going and looking yeah. at a pretty creek is not going to make you fucking, be like, yeah, it might be really cool for two seconds. And mm -hmm. until you realize that there's like a million things around you that are like, you know, bad because that's yeah. the way your brain operates. It's the same thing like telling an alcoholic, like, why don't you just try like, you know, not or what yeah. I, I've had so many people come up to me and be like, oh, so, uh, you know, Max, like you're sober now or whatever. So like, why couldn't you have just like uh, moderate it on your own? It's like, yeah, like I didn't try fucking doing that for like, you know, almost a decade on my own, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or any, and that translates across the whole spectrum. But ableism in itself is sort of like a selfish response by those people that can't control the person that they want to control. Yeah. And by, I mean, by doing that, you or like trying to <clears throat> make something they understand out of something they have no idea right. about, yeah. basically. So people can understand being condescending, right? And people, you know, they just automatically think that people are lazy. Well, they want to be part of that internal sensitivity too. Yeah. They want yeah. to be part of your world, but in the worst way. Yeah, but <laughs> right. only yeah. on their terms. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When like they, uh, a lot of people think that they're like being helpful or like contributing positively to the discussion when they say something like, well, like I'm here for you or, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Or like, uh, why don't you just try doing this? And it's like, you know, I'm a, like a subscriber to the idea that like, you know what I mean? You can't really judge a person by their intentions because you have no idea what they are. Mm -hmm. But largely I think that people don't have, you know, malicious intent towards people that, are struggling with mental illness. I do think though, and I think we touched on this in, a little bit in the beginning, is that as a part of this stigma around, uh, you know, mental illness, there's a large element, there's like a lack of understanding, there's a lack mm -hmm. of uh, transparency um, between- There's no real attempt to understand either. Right, yeah. Well, it's a very- understand are the advertisements on television. Right, and it's, it's a super, it's a super like complex issue too. and. It's interesting, you know, in episode two, the um, interview that I did with uh, Tyler Crochet, who has been one of the more like outspoken younger people in the community here in Columbia for um, addiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he spoke at this forum that the governor convened um, several weeks ago um, and on the opioid uh, crisis here in Columbia. And, um, you know, the big thing that he, you know, he and I sat down for a while. He's, he's a good friend of mine. We sat down for a while and discussed, you know, what um, could possibly help, you know, lessen the stigma. This was as it pertains to, you know, drug addiction, mm -hmm. which is, you know, kind of like addiction is definitely certainly lumped in with like mental health illnesses and that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he's like, you know, the, the deal is, is that like, this is something that's touched everyone, mm -hmm. you know, specifically addiction. And I think that can be translated across the whole spectrum where, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, like mental health, like that's something that everyone has been touched by. And I think that like talking about it and um, being open to like understanding, like, yeah, it's a very complex issue, but as a person who doesn't struggle with a mental health disorder, you can still like latch onto something that you can understand, I mm -hmm. think, because everyone, 
either has someone very close to them or has heard about somebody close to someone else. You know what I mean? It's that whole six degrees of separation where like, like I said um, in the beginning, you know, there's somebody in your office that you work with. I guarantee you that is suffering from some sort of mental illness right now. Yeah, I mean, it's in not... this office. <laughs> yeah, well, there are th there, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell our listeners this: there are three people in this studio right now, and I know that this is news to me. There are three people who have <laughs> who have some sort of mental illness, and I am all three of them. <laughs> what is, uh, Emily, what is the opposite of ableism in the sense that uh, when a person doesn't understand a certain mental illness that they they hate them? That's just being a jackass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is, is that, a, is that right? mental illness? <laughs> that is... Yeah. Jesus. That is called uh, Steve Bannon. Yeah. The Bannon yeah, Cannon. That's, called, that's Breitbart. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're curious about any of that, um, Breitbart... Wasn't it, wasn't Breitbart, no, that's, Breitbart. yeah, Breitbart was like trying to, Drudge Report. well, I mean, yeah. Andrew, Andrew Breitbart, uh, I'm, there's no way in hell that he didn't have, uh, like bipolar or schizophrenia or, or something. I guarantee well, you, like he had to have had that. Well, right. speaking of bipolar and schizophrenia, the, there's this kind of, um, romantic, romanticization, romanticizing of, uh, mental health that occurs particularly in online communities that um yeah like tumblr mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. Like tumblr mainly tumblr and um so where is parasitic <laughs> yeah. yeah well i I'll, i will say this right i think that like everyone lives on the internet now mm -hmm. like that's the thing we live on the internet and like that's where all of our information gets, you know, disseminated and dissected and, and inseminated. And inseminated, right? Um, it's it's where information lives. Like everyone lives on the internet, and so I think it's a very good place to help, you know, advance the conversation about you know a whole broad range of mental health topics. But like people will go online, and I'll say this: if you are a teenager, ages sixteen to like nineteen and you're just struggling growing up, that's not anxiety, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Everybody has their issues yeah, growing up. Yeah, like, I, I'm sorry, and so. Yeah, watch an episode of Growing Pains. Yeah. Just watch Please. Degrassi. Yeah, watch Degrassi, exactly. Well, and yeah. I think, because a lot of it is too, is that um, like the internet through Tumblr has made it like sexy to have some sort of like crippling mental health disorder. Yeah. And a, people want to co-opt it and make it something like small and cute. like. Oh, I get anxiety in groups of people. There are some people who do not leave their homes yeah. because they are so terrified yeah, about other people. Tumblr is to create like a niche subculture, like a small community for people. Well, fuck that. That's yes. what I say to that. Yeah, it's disgusting. Well, it's just... Like, if you are genuinely a person who is struggling with this and your community that helps you survive and try to live a normal life is on Tumblr, good. If you're just a person who reblogs <laughs> Tumblr posts about having multiple personality disorder because you think it's quote-unquote cute, Fuck you. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Multiple Tumblr accounts. Oh. And each one is a different persona. See, I was like, we live none on the internet. Things, That's the none thing. None of them know about the others. Yeah. Wow. Whoa, dude. This okay. is this is, getting, right. this is getting really deep for me right to now. Project what I do. On um, <laughs> I think we just figured out what Austin does in his free time. But no, like bro, this romanticizing, <laughs> this like trend of romanticizing um, mental health symptoms that are easy to digest, like. Um, People can handle like lack of motivation and teariness, unease or emptiness, but they may not be able to fully understand or empathize with these symptoms. 
um, but they're easier to, to digest than psychotic episodes, paranoia, hallucinations, um, stuff like that. So if you, dear listener, think that you may have somebody in your life who is uh, having mental illness struggles, um, don't offer support unless you are prepared to give it to them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it oftentimes isn't so simple as being a shoulder to cry on. Um, Which, like, that's important, but there's a lot more to being there for someone who is who's struggling than just, uh, you know, like like you said, like being a shoulder to cry on or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, cause I think that's another part of, like, uh, of this, of, like, the problem is that people want to say that, like, yeah, like, I'm an ally of this. And, like, it's the same thing with any, like, special interest, really. It's, like, I'm an ally of this until it come, like until push comes to shove and it's time to, you know, to really... stand up for it. Yeah, then it's, like, holy shit, I never realized how much goes into this. But that's, yeah, I mean, exactly. that's another case of a person, like, wanting to be a part of community, of a community that they don't understand. No. So just commoditizing that experience. Right. Um, Sick. So there's... Soft power. <laughs> Fucking social capitalism. There's a lot of intersection with mental illness. With mental illness. Yeah, mental hills. <laughs> Climb mental, that mental hill. <laughs> mental capital illness. Um, so it intersects uh, greatly with race and sexuality, um, and it particularly um, affects uh, youth, LGBT youth of color, disproportionately. Um, so just to touch on the intersection with race. Um, African-American and Hispanic-Americans use mental health services at about half the rate of white people in the past year, and Asian-Americans at about a third of the rate. Um, And uh, although rates of disorders are not higher among minorities, psychological symptoms do tend to be higher among minorities and among the poor. These higher symptom levels uh, may be important because poor function has been related to the sub-threshold symptoms. Um, so what I've noticed is that there's a major hubris in these communities, um, and this attitude that pervades of being self-sufficient, not eating help, especially with emotional distress. Um, right. I was going to ask how much of how much of those uh, figures like relate to some sort of cultural um, element, you mm-hmm. know, like where uh, like that like that idea of being self-sufficient, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So it's, it's intersectionality. It's the process of canceling things out. Mm-hmm. So when you have two ongoing struggles, it's not as e- it's not as easy as having one ongoing struggle. So when you have two opposing forces like that, they cancel each other out. So what's the what's the reality? Acting like nothing is going on. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but it's not exclusive. This attitude, though, is not exclusive to minority communities. Um, but the disproportionate number of minorities living under the poverty line compared to their white counterparts leads to a disproportionate number of minorities being unable or unwilling to seek help. And this could be the case for a few reasons, namely limited access to help and minimal or non-existent education on the matter. Um, Which brings us to how we can change the conversation, how we can help. Um, You know, there's nothing, there's no, um, like, laundry list of ways that this can be fixed. Um, but something that each of us can try in our day-to-day lives, maybe, is to be a little more open about our own struggles and try to, in an effort to normalize them as much as possible. Um, and maybe that will help other people in our lives to seek help. Um, so the key here is to educate yourself. 
you got to do a little learning. Right. I mean, and but also know how to communicate. So yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, educate yourself. Like, like literally, you can read Wikipedia to find out the right. basics, but then like talk to another human being about you know like what's going on. I think that you would be surprised uh, at how open people will be about what they're struggling with um, if they're approached from um, you know like an element of like kindness. Like if you're you know genuinely curious about what's going on mm -hmm. um, in their life and. Because it's easy to like watch a TV show or read some sort of news article about what it's like to live with some sort of um, you know mental illness or addiction or whatever the whatever the matter is. Um, but it's also very different to like sit down and talk to someone and be like, "So how the fuck do you do this every day?" Yeah, you know. Um, and I think that that's definitely a uh, for those of you who are interested in knowing about that kind of stuff. That's definitely a good way. Um, to like break the ice, especially like if you want to make a new friend. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, it is. Yeah, like uh, how you make friends at work. Like, uh, oh, I'm. <laughs> I'll tell you how I. Up to you and oh, asking no. you what uh, what your mental health <laughs> yeah. disorder. I will tell you how I make friends at work. I go up to people at my job and tell them what my mental health issue is. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bipolar schizophrenic, On who's Wednesday. also a drug addict, and it's only Wednesday. Yeah. Right. Um. Okay, so talking about encouraging people to get help, um, I just want to throw this statistic. The statistic. Um, so serious mental illness costs America nearly $200 billion in lost earnings every year. That's right. So support a fucking health care bill that provides essential health and mental health services to people that need it so they can be productive members of society god damn it if you want to pretend to be a capitalist society allow people to earn a fucking living and unfortunately, unfortunately the way ayn the, rand. the way the way the climate is now it they need to start an ayn rand <laughs> ayn rand died in government you, fucking, that's what you said you said she, ayn rand. she died in government fucking housing living on social security and medicare so suck on that, Miss Free Market. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> okay, Emily. What what can we do? Um, what are some resources that we can give our listeners of what to do in an emergency or a crisis? Well, um, as we all know, or as we should all know, that uh, suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in the United States, um, and the numbers of people committing suicide is increasing every year. So if you or someone you know is struggling and um, is too scared to seek help, um, maybe because of the shame attached uh, to the help they're seeking, um, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a wonderful place to start. That number is 1-800-273-8255. And there's also a chat feature for those of you who are uncomfortable with talking on the phone. You can transfer between Tumblr and this chat. Exactly. So yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about mental health and Definitely. something this was that we all face. Can we talk about this every week? Mental health, sure. Yeah, I was gonna say I need to talk about my own mental health every week. Let's just like turn this segment into like a therapy session. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. We'll have callers. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go out in the hallway yeah. and call in. Yeah. <laughs> it's my dream to be like Dear Delilah. Emily. You know, Delilah. The I do. Uh, radio host. Yeah, hey there, like, Delilah from the song? No. That was, that was John What's Tesh's, it like in New York uh, City? John Tesh's wife. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, stick around after this brief break. Let's pronounce Leech. And I will. <laughs>
<laughs> stick around after this brief break, and uh, I will be walking everyone through the news on the <laughs> news on the home front. I do this all for the yams. And we have I quit selling dope to do this podcast. This so this is segment number two, where we're starting already volume levels peaking out. We've had a lot of our fans out there saying that blow bags. <laughs> we've got a lot of our fans out there saying that some of our audio is too low. So this is going to be a nice, interesting experiment. <laughs> yeah. So before I dive into the indictments and the elections, I'm going to take two minutes. Please hold me accountable to this. Two minutes to just talk about um, all of these, all of these sexual assault allegations that have been coming to light in the news. I think that we got affiliations and consternations <laughs> and allegations. God damn it. I think that, in all seriousness, we we are in for some sort of like reckoning. Um, with all of our, you know, like male celebrities across any sort of industry you can imagine, we're going to be seeing allegations like this. It's slowly starting to happen with people in Washington, um, and I think that as we, uh, you know, have more allegations come up, more investigations, uh, we're going to realize something that this is a relatively hot take. And as a man saying this, it's. Uh, it's like a shitty thing to say. There are very likely a a percentage of less than one percent of men who have never committed an act of sexual assault. That is a very, very, very simple fact of life because we are heinous human beings, not just men. Human beings in general are very heinous to each other. And as a, a populace who just ingests entertainment in one form or another all the time, People who we worship as celebrities are still people who commit heinous acts against humanity, just like regular people who aren't uh, famous celebrities. So I'm not saying this. We should not be surprised as more allegations pop up. That this, who do you think will be next? Honestly, who knows? I mean, Who's next? It, I mean, it, it's like the president. I would say, oh, the president of the United States. But like he's already been accused almost by I think it's like either 15 or 16 women have come forward with sexual, um, with allegations of sexual misconduct against Donald Trump. And, you know, the most recent one, now we're starting to, you know, delve into Washington. And so Roy Moore, um, I really don't want to like go into this too much, but Roy Moore has been accused of child molestation. There's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He asked the mothers of the children. Right. Yeah. So I guess it was like almost consenting child molestation, which I doubt, but it's Alabama. So any, literally anything goes in Alabama. That's my two cents on the, the sexual assault um, allegations that have been coming up. Personally, um, I believe more of them are true than are false because, like I said, the percentage of men on Earth who have not committed an act of sexual assault is less than 1%, which means that almost 100% of men on this Earth have probably committed an act of sexual assault. And when people are trying to, uh, I don't know, take the case of the accused... Uh, their basic argument is that, oh, this happened decades ago, this happened years ago. It doesn't matter, it fucking happened, and there needs to be a reckoning for it. So now now that I've had my two two minutes or so of that, we're going to talk a little bit about these uh, Russian indictments, um, because they're, it's pretty sexy news, honestly. Um, so in our last episode, I predicted some indictments to be handed down. 
Michael Flynn hasn't happened yet. That's gonna happen. Um, but it will. But Paul Manafort um, and Rick Gates were um, indicted on mon- uh, on Monday, uh, last Monday, uh, for money laundering and conspiracy charges, and were sentenced to house arrest um, pending um, trial in May of uh, 2018. Can I just say that uh, I'm thinking that Manafort will get uh, pardoned? Well, I mean, this and that that's, shouldn't come as a surprise because we've already seen that the president will use um, his, you know, absolute pardon power to get his friends out of hot water. But there's no, no doubt to save himself. There's an emphasis of Manafort in particular because of who Trump is and what Trump's done. But if Manafort were to be pardoned, it would be the status quo. Um, I mean, right, yeah. foreign influence peddling has been around since the beginning of lobbying, so decades ago. And even the lobbying groups that Manafort has been associated with have indirectly funded uh, regimes in Africa that are have been accused of human rights offenses. Right, absolutely. And along with Paul Manafort, I mentioned a, a former Trump campaign advisor and Manafort associate, actually, Rick Gates, um, was also a part of this first round of indictments. And these are two men who have worked like very closely um, with Russian officials and have lobbied for Kremlin-linked special interests. And all of this was, all this information was something that came out when Manafort first started working for the Trump campaign. Um, a lot of these things that have come out now, it's almost not even a surprise. It's just, you know, now we realize that there was an actual criminal element connected um, with their activities. And the um, special counsel, Bob Mueller, um, has revealed thus far in his investigation that Paul Manafort owes big time to Russian oligarchs, like to the tune of like $60 million, um, which is absolutely fucking obscene. Well, they're, not, they're not Russian oligarchs. They're people associated with uh, the Russian Foreign Service or uh, like rogue agents within uh, right. Russia. And, well, there's like that, not official oligarchs. Right, but there's, like, there's that six degrees of separation where oh, it's right. all, it all leads back to this uh, Kremlin link. And, um, you know, his... Uh, Okay, there was a story recently that came out, um, actually under the you know crooked media, uh, <laughs> just funny to say, the you know the Pod Save America guys uh, website, where we shouldn't be afraid to use the word collusion, but you know this is a pretty close indicator that you know Manafort his like sudden employment by the Trump campaign um, raises questions about whether or not the campaign chairman Paul Manafort. You know, if his ties to Russia are good enough to finally start convincing a large portion of the American public that there was actual collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. But it doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, that collusion was 100 percent what was going on here. And um, it's the the people that are at fault here are those within the Department of Justice, because the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act is never followed. I mean, you have to report any sort of um, breaking of that law to the Department of Justice, but the Department of Justice never does anything about it. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, yeah, they knew they would get away with it. Right. So, uh, they probably are. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's they, enough they to... They, quote, encourage voluntary compliance. Right, <laughs> so. which, which, like, means nothing, which means you don't have to say anything. Um, and this is... 
this is the point in the investigation where it's no longer conjecture, it's no longer punditry. We're actually beginning to see some of the ties that bind uh, between the Trump campaign and Russia. Um, but, and I, I've said this before, unless you get video footage of Donald Trump speaking Russian to his KGB handlers, you're not gonna, we're not gonna have Donald Trump impeached or he's not gonna be thrown in jail. This is, if anything comes to that, um, it's going to be a very long, arduous process that's um, untenable at best. Um, and that's to say that it would not be a far stretch for, in light of all these Roy Moore sexual assault allegations, for him to step out of the race. The governor of Alabama holds the constitutional right to delay the election so that the Republican Party can find a suitable candidate. And the governor of Alabama, this woman can appoint a someone to fill the vacant Senate seat. And right now, the only person that Jeff would be, Sessions. right, would be, no, really, it would be Jeff Sessions would be back in the Senate, which means that Donald Trump could appoint a new attorney general since Jeff Sessions has had to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, which means that, and you already know, I mean, we saw this, James Comey came forward and said that Donald Trump demanded a loyalty pledge from him. So you already know that Donald Trump would be asking, or rather would only give this job to a person who is willing to totally kill the Russia investigation. So that, it's not, I mean, granted, it's a lot of, you know, spinning plates, it's a lot of balls up in the air, whatever sort of analogy you want to use. Chess. Right, exactly. There's a lot that would go into it, but it's not impossible for this investigation to be killed in its tracks and quickly. Um, but I think and, the end result here, just it's, there's like a layer two-dimensional um, idea of confusion here. There's the initial, oh, we'll send the American public into a state of confusion, allowing them to, or making them not know what they actually believe, but also the after effects of, um, it's, you know, it's this confusing dilemma. Was it collusion or not? What is collusion? Does collusion even matter? Um, was he guilty? I mean, we're not, no one knows, no one will know, and that's the whole point. Right, exactly. And that's like the whole, using the term collusion, um, is problematic in and of itself because, uh, like, uh, if collusion doesn't result in anything criminal, it's not a crime. Right. It's a very, it's like, it's like a very loose. It's like trying it's to it's insider trading, uh, in essence. Like you're you're basically fixing the context for something to happen, but not right. Exactly, and it's like, uh, yeah, okay, it's like insider trading. It's also like trying to prove obstruction of justice. You have to prove like motive. Like you have to prove intent and like how. <laughs> You can't do that yeah. unless you like inject someone with sodium pentothal and waterboard them or something. I don't know, um, but basically, like, uh, what, like, if we take a step back, it's very clear to see certain Russian links, right? There's Corey Lewandowski, um, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, um, Donald Trump Jr., and more of this is unfolding right now. Um, with Donald Trump Jr.'s, uh, the revelation that he was in contact with Julian Assange or someone from the WikiLeaks team about disseminating all this misinformation about DNC hacks and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's Just for the, the record, uh, Lewandowski is still in Washington making more money than what he started out with. As right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. With his own lobby firm and everything. Right. And that is the state of American politics. Right. It's, it's despicable. More people connected into this in this Russia Gate shit. Jeff Sessions, uh, Mike Flynn, and his son, both of who are very outspoken on Twitter, 
And if you want some really good comedy, like you don't have anything going on on a Wednesday night, listen to the cutaway, then go read, <laughs> then go read Mike Flynn and his son's Twitter page. It's all in and, Turkish, though. It's right. not in English. Right. And also this Papadopoulos character. Ah, pop, 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 pop. And this is this has no connection to Papa John's Pizza, but this. But the for the Greek restaurant. <laughs> Papadopoulos John's right. Papa John. You know what? After this investigation is over, if he doesn't spend the next sixty years in jail, he definitely needs to capitalize on some really good branding. Well, he'll probably spend the least amount of time in jail because all he, he he's been riding out everybody. Right. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. He was like arrested months ago yeah. and has been just flipping like yeah. just now figuring out. About been it. singing like a bird. Yeah. <laughs> so now. Uh, this is something that I actually am extremely excited to talk about. Uh, the recent elections uh, last week, in uh, particularly in Virginia and New Jersey, um, and how this might be good news for Democrats or maybe not, who knows. Um, but last Tuesday, huge day uh, for Democrats across the country. Um, and while all these elections that were held are important, I just wanted to like shine a spotlight on these two crucial elections in Virginia and New Jersey that yielded positive results, um, not only for Democrats, but also this can easily be uh, figured in as a win for anyone who's not considered part of the Bannon wing um, and doesn't subscribe to this like Trumpism populist nonsense. Um, in New Jersey, um, the Democrats had a relatively, I would call this a qualified success. Um, New Jersey. Right, yeah, certainly. And New Jersey, from a political standpoint, is like an interesting uh, place. Is there are large uh, swaths of like working class Democrats um, who are probably more centrist than anything, you know, like pro union Democrats, as well as you know, like Bernie wing um, transplants. And by the same token, you also have some of the uber rich from New York who live in New Jersey um, that are uh, right wing nut jobs. Um, and I know this because I'm related to some, to some of them. My I uncle was it. I've been exposed to that. <laughs> right. Yeah. My uh, my uncle is a former AT and T executive who now lives in on a farm in New Jersey, and my cousins are nuts. Yeah. Like they're crazy libertarian nut jobs. But a lot of the um, I love Fox about. News people that work in the city live in Northeast New Jersey neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like literally the, the neighborhood that my grandpa, who is from one of those areas, lived yeah. in, was all castles. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah Just, Right, uh, and this is this is great. We have some really awesome notes here on this. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, one of Donald Trump's favorite media punching bags, literal punching, right, and left office with below abysmal approval ratings, if you could even call him that. Um, and everyone in New Jersey fucking hated this guy on his way out the door. Like, I don't think there was anyone in New Jersey. Yeah, he was terrible. And I'm sorry, Chris Christie. I'm sure you'll get a job on Fox News, but you were a fucking terrible governor. No, like uh, local news. Like, wherever, where is he from? He's Trenton. Where is he from? Where is he <laughs> yeah, from he's going to work on the local Fox affiliate in yeah. Trenton. <laughs> we're going to the railroad. Right. And from a... From a closer look in, there are a lot of really cool things that happened in this New, uh, New Jersey election in that um, Hoboken elected its first Sikh mayor, uh, Robbie Bala, um, which is you know very heartening news for Democrats who were fearful of the notion that you know all these like racist dog whistles coming out of Donald Trump's uh, presidency that had already uh, too deeply permeated national politics. Um, this guy was a two-term city council member. Um, and one in the face of campaign ads 
um, that said, and this is a direct quote from one of the ads against him, don't let terrorism take over our town. Um, I don't, this does not surprise me that people that still don't understand the difference between a Sikh and a Muslim. They just don't get it. Um, but that's, I don't, that's an, probably an argument for a different time. Um, and this sort of like sets the stage for what we saw um, that happened in the Virginia election, um, which has been taken from national news outlets and sort of really, um, I think, too broadly extrapolated across what this looks like for the rest of the Democratic Party moving forward. And we can talk about that a little bit, too. But, um, you know, the entire down ticket um, went blue. Justin Fairfax, um, the new the newly elected lieutenant governor, is only the second African-American elected to state office in Virginia's history, which is absolutely incredible in the face of the recent uh, Charlottesville um, protests um, and just generally Virginia's history. Um, and this win was not based on what the Bannon wing wanted, um, which is identity politics. Um, you know, these alt-righters and Trumpists and, um, you know, right-wing whack jobs, right, Trumpeteers, that they want to win on identity politics. They want to win on racist immigration and um, race-related, you know, local issues. Um, and By we local issues, I mean sexual assault. <laughs> right. And, and what we saw in, um, in Ed Gillespie's ads were, were just that. They were all these, like, and most of it wasn't even dog whistle language. I honestly was expecting at some point um, an outright racial slur about Hispanic people and black people from the Gillespie campaign. In relation to his MS-13 comments and um, sanctuary cities, what which, did you say about MS-13? What do you mean? Like what were what, I mean? What were his comments related to? Just that they were overtaking his uh, right. I'm not going to say the racial slur that I thought he was about no, to well, say, that's not what I was but right, <laughs> but just because uh, MS-13, for those of you who don't know, who don't know, is uh, if not the most powerful Latin gang in the world. Yes. Yeah. And, and honestly, one of the most violent and dangerous. I mean, there is no doubt about that. And that's not to say that we shouldn't expect our state and local leaders to defend their uh, residents against uh, gangs. But it's also another thing to categorize all Hispanic people um, under the guise of they're all connected to MS-13, which was what his campaign was doing. Like, MS-13 is kind of cool in California, but, or specifically the Los Angeles area, because um, a lot of people try to leave California to go back to, where is it, uh, is it Guatemala? Where yeah, I think it is Guatemala. Um, so they try to go back to Guatemala, but uh, I guess like a chief aspect of MS-13 gang culture is that if you leave, you die, or if you try to leave, your family will be dead back in Guatemala. So you have this like thriving population of MS-13 uh, <laughs> gangs and uh, throughout Southern California, and they fill up the prisons too, which is like where they right. recruit. But back to this Virginia election, the Bannon wing did not win on identity politics. The Democrats won on a on an actual message of what people want to hear about. Um, Gillespie ran on all this bullshit racial issues that, frankly. Um, don't exist, you know? He's trying to like, it's almost like a message right out of the 50s where white families should be afraid that people of color are gonna move into their neighborhoods and rape their daughters, which is absolutely fucking incredible. And Democrats ran on a campaign 
based on gun control, jobs, and one of the top issues in this country right now, which is healthcare. And I think that right now, you know, staying on message and not being distracted by this crap because voters are very easily appealed to on an emotional level. However, when you actually present them with the real issues, the real hard issues that they care about, you can actually win elections. And, um, you know, it was very interesting. Going into a lot of these elections and thinking about the midterms and thinking about 2020, I was, I'm, up until recently, I was very apprehensive to think that, that the Democrats could actually come up with a message that could meet and exceed um, the power of an emotional appeal that the, that the Republicans consistently run on. And not so much. Not so much. Right, and but before this election, I had a, the opportunity to go see. Um, actually, I went to go to see Pod Save America live in Virginia, and they had um, uh, Northam, Fairfax, and the uh, Attorney General actually on a segment of their recording. And it's incredible to see exactly the power of like delivering a, a really strong message as opposed to you know, catering to someone's emotional wiles. Um, it's, it's incredible to see exactly how much more powerful that message is when it's delivered in a real no-nonsense way that has nothing to do with identity politics. And I think that, you know, I'm not someone that runs political campaigns. I'm an idiot that talks into a microphone. <laughs> but I think that a message like that is um, something that the Democrats absolutely can and need to capitalize on in elections moving forward. Um, just to, just to uh, put this into perspective, identity politics were the sort of, that was the central strategy of uh, the Democratic Party before Trump. Right, exactly. But I think that, like, now we realize that, uh, like, we had our first black president and we need to <laughs> move beyond right. identity politics into an actual message, an actual substance. Um, because that's what people care about, you know, regardless you know, of... identity politics are, that is the... Trump's narrative. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, they've co-opted it because they realized how successful it was for right. the Democrats, and now we need to actually come back with a message that's about real issues, not because jobs, health care, public safety. Successfully. And then, yeah, right. And, well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, you can't just have two people doing emotional appeals at the same time. And people care about real issues. People care about a living wage. People care about access to healthcare. People care about being safe. People care about gun control. Like these are actual issues that I think if you have real solutions to these problems, which but the Democrats obviously, have no solutions, and they're completely well, they did in Virginia anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying is that this is a this is something going forward um, that the Democrats can really capitalize on because since since the first the, for the first time since Obama's uh, you know election in 2008, the Democrats are getting like electoral victories and. There's absolutely no reason why they can't carry this momentum into the midterms in a presidential election in 2020. Um, it's really hard to say if this is a, a wholehearted uh, rejection of the ban and wing and Trumpism. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if it is or not. I think that we're starting to see more and more that Steve Bannon is not this brilliant political operative. He was a hack that got hired on by the Trump campaign because he was trolling the dregs of conservatism. Um, in order to find actually find someone that would work for him, you know, respected conservative political operatives would not work for Donald Trump, and so he, you know, dredged up uh, this moron Steve Bannon, and now he's a household name. And so, um, I think this is you know another 
ridiculous take almost, but as long as there are racist baby boomers walking the earth, um, the Bannon wing will not be rejected. Um, but I personally see this as a referendum on the GOP um, and Trump's message. Um, but regardless, this took like major, uh, major boots on the ground effort um, for the Democrats to have this victory in Virginia. And I think that that is, that is something that uh, the party can take going forward um, and hopefully translate into more electoral victories going into the midterms, at least. Um, it's going to take the, these organizations that are getting out there and letting people know exactly what the issues are, because people think that it's all about the NFL and that it's all about um, building a fucking wall that doesn't exist, that it's about like a racist ban, that it's about all these like uh, racial, like really just racist shit. It's appealing to racism within white communities. Um, and I think that all the work that these organizations did to let voters know that this is what the GOP is doing in your district, um, I think all the work they did to counter that is something that we're going to need to do moving forward and what Democrats are going to need to do moving forward if they want to um, continue uh, with these victories. I think they, they have their social initiative on lock. I mean, a, a win's a win, right? But this, these aren't landslide victories. And the mere fact that they had to employ a on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground uh, effort is indicative alone that uh, what they're doing is not working. But I will say that um, it's good that they have a base. They're not relying on identity politics. They're relying on education and informing the general public that have simply been uh, disinterested and not strong enough in their own uh, political positions. But what's most important with any political party is the unity amongst all members of the party and all factions of the party. And Which on a national scale, we can both agree is something that's not happening. Yeah, it's a complete disaster for the Democrats. Yeah, because, I mean, and a lot of this, this is something that we're certainly going to talk about in a future episode, is that I think the United States would benefit from a multi-party system like they have in Europe. Um, we can talk, we'll talk about this in a future episode, what the outcome would likely be. But I think that it would give greater freedom to the various caucuses within the Democratic Party because, you know, you see there's like this distinction between like the Hillary wing and the Bernie wing and we keep relitigating the 2016 election. Well, but, it's like a progressivism that doesn't apply to anyone and a pragmatism that is like a safe choice. Right. Which but, it, it, but it still works. Right. Well, and because it's comfortable, but it doesn't actually get us anywhere and but people are, and it's well, not, it, it tried to get us somewhere, but uh, the American political system did not allow it to get us somewhere. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, undoubtedly. So, I mean, there's no point in like trying to employ uh, a, a centrist perspective between progressivism and pragmatism when uh, pragmatism doesn't even work. And progressivism is on Neptune. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. And a lot of it, too, has to do with like both parties, whether we realize it or not, are moving further to the right where even progressives within the mainstream left are still centrists. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that most of the news that people consume um, comes from some sort of um, at least center-right media. Yeah. Um, and, because, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's closely tied with how our economic system works. You know, even even people who consider themselves progressives are still relatively, at least like a personal level, fiscal conservative, like yeah. tightwads. Well, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we have that like under this undertone, that narrative going on all the time with a lot of people. 
But I think Democrats are politically weak. Uh, there's no, there's right, no yeah. secret about that. Uh, so you're starting to see this trend of Democrats um, trying to reorganize something that's failed for the Republicans. Obviously, the Republicans will have always, within the past 20 years, gotten together and tried and tried to force something through because they can and because they. Well, want they got to. lucky with Trump. Right, they yeah, got lucky well, that he picked to run as a Republican. So they got Democrat. lucky with uh, George W. Bush with every single like, foreign policy legislation they could get through. Well, yeah. Um, so there's no shortage of this uh, taking place within the Democratic Party. The problem with the Democrats is that um, they they inherently can't do that, and they'd rather stand for their own individual ideologies than the uh, consensus right, ideology. And come up with a party platform. Right, yeah. So you're seeing this with Bernie Sanders. And they're afraid, uh, I think it's because they're afraid of a, a truly progressive platform. That that's what their vote, that's what right. the core base of their voters well, They're, they're want. afraid of the base. They're afraid of 20 year olds who aren't educated. Or see that um, the voter for a Bernie Sanders like candidate is like, uh, is like living outside of his or her head. Basically. Right, yeah. Well, that's what they view those kind of people as. And I think with a little bit of outreach and education, that they'd realize that an actual, oh, yeah, hopefully. like yeah. a, a progressive platform would be the way to go. But but I mean, they try to, they have to move from something that is inherently and on paper transformative, but entirely unlikely, uncertain, um, not applicable at all to what the general public would vote for. I think that's, I think that's how they end up with just like a centrist platform that is, you know, has well, no team. Right now right now using Bernie Sanders as a, a toy. Well, they need, what, I think he needs to stop fucking around with the DNC. He's not a Democrat. He's never proclaimed to be a Democrat. But they know, they know he's like a, an absurd it's good, politician. It's they good know. PR for them to have Bernie around. around. But, but they, I mean, they're viewing it as having uh, a spectrum of different perspectives on one issue, or rather like five or six different issues on like one piece of legislation that they could get possibly get passed. They're viewing that as a strength instead of what it obviously is as a weakness. Horrible weakness, yeah. right. So, that that sort of like gives us a view of what hopefully could happen in in 20, uh, uh, 2018 and beyond. But <laughs> despite these normal things in the news cycle, um, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to to, uh, to fill everyone in on my favorite, absolutely ludicrous news story of the week. Um, this came out of the Associated Press on the fourth. Um, a, a Nebraska man was sent to prison because he was sending strippers and hookers over to his neighbor his neighbor's house to like dance on his dance on his neighbor's front porch. This is George like, Clooney. <laughs> no, we're not on Clooney news yet. I, if this was George Clooney, you'd have you'd have you'd see me having a very hard time condemning this behavior because it's George Clooney. But anyway, this Nebraska this Nebraska man. Sent to prison because he was sending hookers, prostitutes, wow, sending hookers and strippers over to his neighbor's house to dance on his dance on this guy's porch and like heckle the family and like bang on the door demanding payment. <laughs> and this was to the tune of like fifty fucking times this guy did this, and finally the cops came and like arrested the guy for it. How does it happen fifty times before you get arrested? It should be like one time you send hookers over to your neighbor's house, you're arrested. Fifty different back page accounts. Yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, it's it's ludicrous, and if 
anyone wants to actually get more information on it, you can find it on the Associated Press. The interesting thing about this too, this came across my Twitter feed, not by the AP oddities, which is something they have for like odd news stories. This was the straight up regular Associated Press Twitter, which disseminated this information, which I guess that's just the state of news today. Um, <laughs> but no, I think it was alternative press. Are you sure? It wasn't? <laughs> Isn't that dead? <laughs> they were they were, they revived themselves. Punk is dead. Yeah, punk is dead. Um, All right, hurry up with plenty. <laughs> so we've had a, a slow cycle in, in Clooney news. Um, unfortunately for us all, um, mostly me, his biggest, most adoring fan, <laughs> Clooney, Clooney and his wife Amal, they keep a, a very a low profile. Uh, however, Steve Rose, a film columnist for The Guardian, uh, recently published a, a short piece on what a Clooney presidency would look like, um, which is interesting. Uh, was, uh, was it in outer space? <laughs> yeah, it was written in outer space for the aliens to read. Um, I mean, Clooney does have a very good grasp on the issues, but I'm okay with an actor actually not being president, unless Clooney announces that he's running for president, in which case I personally endorse him and will run his campaign in South Carolina. Um, and the, you know, Clooney, self-admittedly, no longer a Hollywood leading man, and his like directorial options are few and far between. Um, so what what is this rich, handsome, famous, and universally adored guy going to do? He needs to start doing movies with the Coen brothers and... Steven Soderbergh again. Those are, those are the only movies that he's yeah. valuable in. Or run for president, please. <laughs> okay. Okay, so be sure to like our Facebook page, search The Cutaway, and nothing else. Subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So It's The Cutaway, one word, C-U-T-A-W-A-Y. A lot of people have been asking me about that if it's two words. Or one just word, play the episode cutaway. inside your brain. Yeah, exactly. Download the episode into your bloodstream. And we've got the, uh, got the outro music going. So, uh, <laughs> au revoir. Yeah. Auf Wiedersehen. We are out. So, be sure. Auf Wiedersehen, Schwanzer Kopf. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>